This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 155 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a brilliant young actor who won last year's Emmy for Best Actor in a Drama Series and might well win this year's, too. The star of USA's massively acclaimed Mr. Robot, on which he plays Elliot Alderson, a cybersecurity specialist by day and master hacker by night, who grapples with psychological issues and drug addiction while trying to free the world from heartless corporations, Rami Malek. The 36-year-old, who was born in Los Angeles to Egyptian immigrants, has been acting professionally for the last 14 years, slowly but steadily building a name for himself. Early career milestones included key supporting parts in Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks' Emmy-winning HBO miniseries The Pacific, Paul Thomas Anderson's Oscar-nominated film The Master, the blockbuster fantasy flick The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2, and the magnificent indie drama Short Term 12. And then came Mr. Robot. Smart, innovative, and edgy from the outset, the show's first season, which aired from June through September of 2015, was awarded a Peabody, named one of the year's top 10 shows by the American Film Institute, voted Best New Program by the Television Critics Association, won the Best Drama Series Golden Globe Award, and was nominated for the Best Drama Series Emmy. And it brought Malik a boatload of accolades of his own. Not only the Best Actor in a Drama Series Emmy, of which he was the first non-white recipient in 18 years, but also a Critics' Choice Award, as well as nominations for Golden Globe and Screen Actors Guild Awards. The show's second season, which debuted last July and aired through last September, was comparably lauded and is the one eligible for recognition this award season. Its third season will premiere in October. Over the course of our conversation at his publicist's office in New York, where he's currently filming the third season of Mr. Robot, Malik and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, the lack of imagination that he ran up against early in his career when he was cast as a terrorist, an insurgent, and an Egyptian king, but not in parts that allowed him to show his full range. The most important lessons that he has learned along the way from collaborators who gave him a chance to show his chops, like Tom Hanks, Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Lee, and especially Mr. Robot creator and showrunner Sam Esmail, how he figured out how to portray Mr. Robot's Elliot, from his hoodie and haircut to his voiceovers and emotional reactions, or lack thereof, to tragedies, what he makes of the relevance and prescience of the show, the first season of which hit the air just after the information gathered from the Sony hack was leaked, and the second season of which arrived just before the discovery of the Russian hacks 
that attempted to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Rami, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Ah, okay. Well, it was a pleasure to be here with you. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, actually, one of the rare ones. My father sold insurance. He started out selling it door-to-door in Watts and just kind of worked his way up the ladder. And my mom has been an accountant at the, working for the same family for over 25 years. Wow. In the valley. In the valley. Grew up in the valley. <laughs> Talk about your background. Is it both sides of your family are of Egyptian descent? Yeah. My father came from the southern part of Egypt, similar to like our, our south, very ki- kind of rural country. <laughs> and my mom from Cairo. And did they meet there or here? They met there. Yeah kept visiting her at her work at when, when she saw her and kept on her tail for a while That's until great. she couldn't get rid of him. <laughs> and then they ended up coming over here. My, my dad ended up working in a travel agency, and so he would take people all around Cairo, and he just saw this world out there that was, you know, constantly coming in and, and having this, this kind of portal into something else that he imagined for himself. So That's great. Packed their bags, came here. And what do you know what year that was? Just out of curiosity. I think that was I think that was seventy eight or seventy nine. Nice. Yeah. And then you come along like what, two years after that? Yeah. Are you the oldest? No. My sister is a few years older and she was actually born there. Okay. Then my brother I have a twin brother and, mm-hmm. and we were born in Torrance, California. Nice. A lot of information Yeah, for no, this you. is great. It's great. So what kind of a kid were you? Were you the popular guy? Were you the, the nerd? What, what was it? Wow, I didn't know these things yeah, were so your personal. Whole life. They go through your whole life. <laughs> really? Yeah, you, okay. Yeah, yeah. Was I popular? No, I was not. I was not. Definitely not. No, I, <laughs> I, there was always something a little, I feel, I guess quirky is the word or unusual, but I accepted that. I knew it was okay. I'm, I think it toughened me up a little bit that I wasn't the most popular kid growing up. My brother, on the other hand, who is my twin, twin. was more popular. <laughs> and sometimes he would get invited to parties, and I wouldn't. And I'd be like, he was so cool because he's like, well, if you're not, you, you can't go. I'm not going to go. But I'm like, Did go. you figure out what was he doing differently? No, I didn't. <laughs> I think that was the whole conundrum. Right. was like, what the going on? <laughs> so... Talk about how acting entered the picture. I, I read something preparing for this that you were initially going down the route of debating or, or something. And Man, then, you did your homework. <laughs> yeah, I think my dad was like, you should wanted me to get into politics. And, you know, debate class in high school was a way to do that, I felt. But I never really had a knack for that. What I did have is, you know, they have humorous interpretation and dramatic interpretation class in debate as a route you could go. And there's one actually, the substitute teacher named Lester Berry, I'll never forget him (laughs) because he was hilarious when he came in. I always look forward to him coming in. And I think he saw something in me for a second and said, you know what, try out this play by Charles Fuller called Zoo Man and the Sign. And you can do it as a dramatic interpretation. It was like a, you know, it was a one-man play, basically. At what point in school were you at I this I think point? I was like 13 or 14, freshman year. Okay. 
you know, I just remember taking it and having it be just be filled by the words and and creatively, I was, you know, I, I was shocked at how the words were just flowing right out of me and how the impact of what the story was, it was, you know, about a young man who's who's growing up in the ghetto and was an African-American man, but somehow, you know, I related to it mm-hmm. very much. And, you know, I found my 13 or 14-year-old self spitting out, you know, the first line was, you know, my name is Zooman, Z-O-O-M-A-N, I'm from the bottom. <laughs> and I ended up performing that in high school and inviting my mom and dad, who I don't think had any idea that, you know, I was capable of being <laughs> a creative. And, and how did they respond? You know, my dad was a very, very stoic man, and he got emotional during it. And that was a very moving moment for me, too, because, you know, to have to see that from your father, but have it come from a place where, you know, you're sharing this you know, creative moment and there's not it's not just a one-on-one moment. I could, I could feel the impact of what art could do. Not only to, to an audience, but an audience that was, you know, your bloodline. No, oh, it's amazing. So was that, in a way, the the permission to proceed down that course in life? As a, it sounds like <laughs> they wanted you to be more a lawyer, doctor type uh, before that. Was it after that it changed? No, there, <laughs> no, there wasn't. That it took a long time. You'd think at that point. No, they really just wanted me to get get the best grades and and go into law or medicine, my sisters and, and became an ER doctor, so she fulfilled that void. But still, I, I went and did the high school plays after that. Mm-hmm. A couple other actors of, of note, Kirsten Dunst went to my high school, oh, nice. and she was in class with us. Rachel Bilson, do you know that actress? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I was OC, right? Or, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our high school plays were pretty yeah, good. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> no, this is perks of being in L.A., growing yeah, up in L.A. Exactly. And then, you know, after that, I... I remember wanting to continue. I liked theater a, a lot, and I, I really gravitated to that and would see plays and come to New York. I was talking to uh, Reed Bernie. I went to see 1984 the other night. My friend Nick Mills is in there. Mm-hmm. Shout out. But <laughs> he was he was telling me, he's like, what was the first play you saw? And I, I think it was Cabaret. With Alan Cumming? Here with Alan Cumming, nice. one of the first performances. That's awesome. I was like, man. That this, I mean, I was just so floored and moved by yeah. it. I was like, "This, you can make a living doing this, <laughs> but you really can't." Well, it's <laughs> not, not not everyone. Not everyone. You go off to University of Evansville. That's in that's Indiana, right? Yeah. And at that point, what are you thinking? Your future's going to entail? Did you think you you could end up doing this, or were you just that was just sort of the pipe dream? Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't think I ever, I I always had major doubts because all anyone ever tells you growing up and and have aspiring to do this job is it is nearly impossible. I mean, (laughs) and it is. I mean, the fact of anyone coming out of this and (laughs) even being on your podcast or or having, you know, a, a real steady job where they say, I'm an actor and I get paid to do that on a regular basis, it's astounding. Yeah. I mean, it's very slim to none. So to just, I set off to go to a theater school. I never thought I'd be in southern Indiana, of all places, doing that. But I went and saw The Merchant of Venice at this school, and I couldn't believe these college kids were doing The Merchant of Venice so well. As much as I was really concerned about going into 
this really rural city and being so far away from you know having kind of a cosmopolitan life yeah. <laughs> it sure. was it was a i mean and it was a shock yeah. being there but you know it was a great great place to study the classics and i mean we were doing everything from Chekhov to Stoppard and to you know new playwrights and that school actually afforded me this ability to go to the Eugene O'Neill Theater in Connecticut where yeah. The late great Jim Houghton was fostering some incredible writers, and he would he would give everyone at the Signature Theater here in New York writers their own season. Wow. So, so you would do that what in the I, summer? I went in the summer, yeah, yeah and I, I just kind of interned uh, for this playwriting conference, and I had the pleasure of meeting August Wilson oh there. Oh my God! Yeah, so I was like. You know, drive August Wilson around. And oh, my I'd, God. You know, basically get him whatever he needed. He liked to smoke, yeah. so I would always go <laughs> buy cigarettes right. so that I'd have them handy for him, and I'd exchange him, like, a pack of smokes for a great story. That's so, amazing. Yeah, so I was, like, you know, nineteen twenty, getting that experience. And, I mean, when you're immersed in all of that, it becomes clear that this is a really really great lifestyle if if you can get away doing right, it. Right. Yeah. So you come out of there oh three, you have your BFA. Did you move to New York? Did you move back to LA? What did what did you do? I went straight to New York and me and two of the guys at school tried to move into like a one bedroom <laughs> apartment downtown. I think it was on like Allen and Delancey. Mm-hmm. I remember it. I went and saw it, and within like a few hours, I called them. I was like, I found our place, guys. <laughs> They're like, what's it like? I'm like, we'll see when you get there. <laughs> I mean, so I, I hung out here, did some theater with, you know, just just the kids I went to college with. Mm-hmm. We would just put up plays wherever we could, and they actually still have a theater collective running called the Slant Theater Project. But I ended up going back home just, I don't know what brought me there for a trip. And the casting director, Mally Finn, I got to sit down with. And she kind of looked at me and she's like, you don't need to go back to New York for a while. I think stay here. And you know the city so well. It's not as intimidating as it is for so many actors that come in here. And I think she spotted some modicum of talent that let her <laughs> say, you know, you might want to just give this a shot. At that point, did you have representation? How would it even work going at that I, point? No, I didn't even have any representation, no. What did I do? I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I'll tell you the funny story. I used to just put all my headshots in manila envelopes and and really just take them to, you know, I would take them to film schools mm-hmm. where the kids were, you know, making films. I'm like, that's something to yeah. do. Maybe I could get something there sent them to like every agency in Hollywood, every casting director, and I didn't hear back from anybody for so long. I mean, it was devastating. And one time I sent my headshot in for, it was the Gilmore Girls. It was the first thing I ever did. Before you even had a SAG card, right? Before I even had a SAG (laughs) card. The casting director called me and she's like, "Um, you represent Rami Malek? And I I said, actually, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you know, she asked me, she said, what, what company is this? And I said, um, 
Well, I'll just be brutally honest. Right. There is no company. Right. It's just me, <laughs> and you're talking to him. So right. I guess there's no middleman. Right. <laughs> and she kind of started laughing. Right. She's like, well, you know, call me when you have an agent and all that. I'm like, listen, what is this part? Like three lines in the show? Why do we even need right. an agent oh, you said for this? this? Yeah. That's great. Look, I was pretty brazen and down and out. <laughs> I was like, anything, right. you know, just start trying, just keep trying to be charming. Don't get too overzealous. <laughs> but by the end of it, I found myself just being as charming as I possibly could. And I was like, come on, what's a, how long is this possibly going to take you? Like right. five minutes. Right. And she kept laughing and laughing. She said, all right. That's you know, awesome. Yeah, come and it ended tomorrow. up being the, so that's the first thing. Yes. And then did that itself lead to, you felt like a flow of other things? You know, that day, actually, that was the same day I got a call from one of the agents that I had sent like 150 <laughs> resumes to. Right. And so honestly, every, that was a major day because an agent called me back, then they referred me to some manager, and I feel like everything within a few days of, of trying seemed to work out. A little bit, but I used to also work at like in Hollywood at a like a fast food place, and I would keep my I would keep my headshot stockpiled there. <laughs> and anytime who I saw anyone that looked remotely like a producer or affiliated <laughs> with the business, I mean, it's like you see in the movies, and I would take it out and slip it into their food. This is a good lesson though, because it, it worked. I mean, if you if you hadn't been entrepreneurial, you wouldn't have had that first. Gilmore Girls thing or the agent, both things that happened that day. Yeah. So when you now, I presumably started getting sent out on things by this agent, what was the feedback you got most frequently? I don't think people got it. Or my (laughs) agent was afraid to ever say what the real feedback was. It was mixed. I mean, I think some casting directors were like, okay, this guy's got something. And then others were like, what is he doing? (laughs) (laughs) Because it started out in, in some ways, it seems like not to say that it was that these early things were not good or that you weren't good or whatever, but they, they some of the stuff seems like, all right, we need a Egyptian king, right, or something for Night at the Museum. This is a guy that's that fits that bill, right? Or some of the early stuff. I know that even, and you've talked about, I think, even as, as far as 2010, when you did season eight of 24, you were, you were cast as a terrorist. And I think you've said that, and there was something in between where you played a, an Iraqi insurgent. Some yeah. of the stuff that sounds like a bit of lazy casting, was that, did it bother you that that was the reflex for some of these people? Yeah, of course it bothered me. I mean, it's funny now, cause you look at this world where, you know, there are so many actors of you know, color or ethnicity, uh, you know, headlining things or, or having really prominent parts where that just was not the case ever. And Just a few years ago. Just a few years ago, yeah. yeah. And I mean, people don't necessarily identify me as ethnic sometimes. Sometimes it's like, is he? What is he exactly? <laughs> but as far as like what people could buy as a terrorist. It was fine for me to be like <laughs> the light-skinned version right. of that. Because even in, throughout Hollywood history, I mean, who is, I guess, I think Omar Sharif would have been, he was of Egyptian descent. O- Omar Sharif's our big claim. He's your big fame. one, yeah. yeah. I mean, is there really, there weren't too many other examples, right? No, no, but not a bad one. No, he's a hell of a good one. Yeah. yeah, what a great actor. I want to read you something that, Sam Esmail, the man behind 
Mr. Robot did an interview. First, I guess he's also of Egyptian descent, right? Yeah, and we both did not know, <laughs> you didn't know. That about each other. <laughs> so he, he did an interview with the New York Times, and he said, quote, Growing up, I thought white male was the norm, the default character in every story. I never thought other possibilities could exist. And I remember thinking when I would watch Woody Allen films or films that felt personal, I wonder what I'm going to do when I write my personal films because I can't cast an Egyptian-American. That would be weird. And so uh, <laughs> so I guess could you relate to that idea that you're seeing things that you want to be doing and at least early on other people – lack the imagination, as we've kind of talked about. How does that affect somebody who's trying to trying to make it? It was very difficult because, I mean, at once, you know, when those things were, were coming my way or when I was, go, you know, those were the auditions mm-hmm. I was getting. I was like, I just get, I think I just have to humanize these guys and that's what I'm going to do for a while. And so I, as an actor, I've found some solace in taking what would be, you know, someone somewhat of an evil character and making them relatable. I think that's what I've aspired to do in my entire career mm-hmm. is make all of these unusual characters that I play somewhat relatable. Sure. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I always thought that I had hopefully enough enough talent to to kind of transcend that kind of ideology or, or Hollywood belief system. and But for a long time, I was, yeah, thought maybe that would be it. And the only thing I could get otherwise would be on stage, where I yeah. felt like there was a little bit more latitude. Sure. Well, the, the turning point, it seems like, tell me if I'm wrong, would have been Corporal Snafu in the Pacific. This is the Spielberg Hanks miniseries that was on HBO. Big thing project in every way, but how, how was it for you? It sounds from, from things I've read like it was pretty transformative. Yeah, that was, I mean, still today, that's probably the most transformative moment I've had as an actor, I think. I just didn't know if I'd ever get an opportunity like that. Meg Lieberman, casting director who put me in this show called Medium, where mm-hmm. I, I had a great guest starring role on paper it was great and she saw something in me that's that that is thing to bring bring it back I have to thank all these casting directors Mm -hmm. that did not give up on me because they really pushed I think they could see something that you know the people up the ladder might have had a more difficult time seeing and there were there have been a lot of casting directors in my corner Mm -hmm. who early on was were like there's something there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So she brought me in for that. She had cast the Band of Brothers version yeah. earlier, and I took to that story. I've, I have a thing for history. I have a thing for, you know, the stories of men going into combat. And uh, this was something that I, you know, was would have given my arm to be a part of. And went in there and just I, I remember working so hard on this audition maybe too hard <laughs> to the point where it came off a little too earnest but <laughs> she had actually brought me in for one of the leads wow. and which I was I mean that was a very progressive idea mm-hmm. but uh, as soon as I started reading for that she goes you know there's another part in here that I think would work for you and this Cajun kind of vet of, of war, and by vet, I mean he'd been there like a year or two right. longer. Right. And these were just kids going there, but someone who had kind of 
seen enough to be a little bit numbed by it and I just I work day and night to to perfect that and well I read one thing where you were saying it was it was to the extent that that was as far as sometimes actors can get lost in a part or the mindset or whatever that was the closest to that you've had yeah that would be it I remember what it, what it, it was such a great experience because I went through audition and audition and then Kirk Sadusky, who works for Tom's company at Playtone, mm-hmm. he and I became friends along the way and he sent me a, a, a picture of a typewritten note that's, you know, from Tom Hanks to the producers saying, you know, this Rami kid would be, you know, has, is haunting in this certain <laughs> way. I was like, oh my God. That's great. Yeah. So then I was like, okay gotta be haunting <laughs> so let's go the haunted route and so uh, for a few months preparing I just you know did as much research as I could and found myself really emo- you know putting myself in those places every night and just going there in, in preparation in my own home you know just sitting there closing my eyes and letting it wander into foxholes and and noises of, of combat and all of that to the point where I mean I went into into being shipped off to our you know Hollywood boot camp mm-hmm. feeling like I had seen a lot already just yeah. because as an actor we can we can really put ourselves mentally in those places without actually being there yeah never would I ever compare it to the real thing of course of course but. yeah yeah you know, then being thrust into into a military style boot camp in Australia, where you're going through a very, I feel, similar type of treatment by with real Marines, yeah. putting you through what was a really horrifying experience. I bet. I bet. I mean, at one point, I found myself crying. You know, in these fatigues, in these boots, and just kind of stripped of like a little bit of my dignity, and th- thinking is this worth it? You know, and then of course it is worth it. Well, and you definitely impressed Tom Hanks because right after that you did Larry Crown, right? Yeah. So that was a change of tone, right? Yeah. (laughs) Different. It was a, yeah, very change, (laughs) big, big change of tone. Well, they, I remember going in to do the final audition and I was sitting there reading a scene with Joe Mazzello who played Eugene Sledge in it and you know, usually in these in these auditions, it's you know some a young intern who's filming you on a camcorder, and this happened to be an older man, not, mm-hmm. not yeah, terribly yeah, yeah. old. But I looked I looked halfway through, and I go, "This guy looks really familiar." And Spielberg was actually taping the audition. Oh my yeah. god! So oh my, that god. was a very make or break moment where oh like, you, <laughs> this was the audition for. For, it was the final audition to actually get the role before we left. For so. the but for the Pacific. For the Pacific. Okay, that's and, crazy. Yeah, and when you figured it out in the middle of the audition, I figured it out in the middle of an yeah. That was a that would that would jar a lot of people. <laughs> it, yeah, that's one thing I did. You know, it gave me some type of confidence in the moment that I was there, and, and I was. I was not thrown by it. Right. And that's another seminal moment where I said, okay, mm-hmm. I, I can hang in this. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd be able to, mm-hmm. but it's a, it was a lesson. And then afterwards, yeah, I got Tom and I, Tom ended up typing a, a letter to me while I was there. And, and we started corresponding a little bit. Just I wrote him back. I 
bought a typewriter in Australia just oh, to write him awesome. back. Yeah, because he was so kind. And then we, he, he, I came back to Los Angeles and surprised him at the office, and he just gave me a big bear hug and said, "Yeah, one day we're gonna work together again." That's that pretty ended soon. up happening. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Certainly making our way to Mr. Roba, but there's a couple of things that I think you, we can't overlook. And one of them, another one of them is also Paul Thomas Anderson, the master. I've read a thing here. You said it was, quote, one of the most inspiring things I ever got to work on, close quote. What, what made it that? I mean, there's no denying what Paul is capable of doing as a filmmaker. And I think to get into a place where you're doing scenes with, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, and of course, Joaquin Phoenix, and have them directed by Paul Thomas Anderson is, I mean, that's an earth-shattering experience on its own. Can you remind people who you were portraying in The Master? Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the master in that and kind of the the leader of a certain religion Mm -hmm. that he's formed, and I'm someone heavily involved in that. And through the course of the film, actually end up marrying his daughter and feel kind of like a son to him Mm -hmm. until Joaquin's character comes in. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a a lot of great scenes that did not make the final cut of that, but it was satisfying nonetheless. You know, Paul shoots quite a bit of footage, and I think when you're in a film with, with those three talented actors... Some of the first things to go are probably your scenes. <laughs> but yeah, nonetheless, I mean, it was, you know, doing a scene where I get to challenge Joaquin and, and you know, Phil's in there watching the whole thing go down is, that's just a remarkable experience. I mean, we were shooting on a, on a boat going underneath the Golden Gate Bridge over and over and over, a boat that used to actually be the presidential ship for Kennedy. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah, that was just an incredible experience. And I remember auditioning for that. I kept coming in for that one as well. I think Paul had actually seen the Pacific, and really that performance took him. So he asked for you for, for the, to come audition? Yeah. That's cool. I think I was initially auditioning for Joaquin's part. Okay. That clearly didn't go my <laughs> way. And then I remember, I remember going into that final audition and I saw this like grizzled kind of really thin man standing outside and I was like, what is this guy doing out here? (laughs) And then as soon as I walked in, he follows me and I look back and that was Joaquin Phoenix behind me. So I go, oh, guess I'm reading with Joaquin today. (laughs) And he had already started working on that character so he'd lost some weight and didn't look like he was in the the greatest (laughs) physical look or or shape of his life. I remember reading with Joaquin and, and having, you know, another feeling of, oh, I can do this with him, too. Yeah. And it was another moment with but Paul was like, you know, I'm, uh, I really dig your work. I, I really respect your, what you can do, but I don't think this is going to be our movie. And I was like, Paul... You don't make a movie like every four or five years, man. This is our movie. <laughs> yeah, you got you got nothing to lose at that yeah, point, right? at that point, I was like, come on, man. I'm not going to... Ha-. And he laughed, too. So I was like, you know, it does pay to be a little charming, I, I love guess, that. without being too Yeah, aggressive. and bold. Just don't be... Uh, Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I literally was in that room saying, Joaquin's here. You're here. Like, we could just be doing this right now. Right. I love it. So a very different 
genre, scale, everything than I think anything you'd done before would have been Twilight. You get in there, and this was the 2012 one, Breaking Dawn Part Two, Egyptian Vampire. These are movies that take a lot of flack, but they obviously have a lot of fans, and they're doing something that connects with people. Just generally speaking, was there any takeaway from being a part of something like that? Absolutely. I mean, that was a movie that Bill Condon was directing, and he's a really phenomenal director mm-hmm. and, and you know great to work with as an actor. I feel like he really is an actor's director and, and capable of so much more. And so that was an opportunity, I think, to have that experience. And I knew it was going to be beautifully shot as I'd worked with Guillermo Navarro before. Mm-hmm. So I thought, why not? You know, and, and it was at a place where I knew it would reach a huge base. Yeah. And people were definitely drawn to that story. So it was... A questionable decision, I thought, for uh, obvious reasons, but I thought it was one worth taking. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people in those movies have gone on and done interesting things. I mean, Kristen certainly has a nice career going, and yeah. and Rob, I, I haven't seen it, but I guess he had something at Cannes, and it just, I guess for for those guys in the central parts, it seems to be that there were a few years there where people had a hard time seeing them as somebody else. And I guess that was less of a concern if you're a supporting player in the movie. Yeah. So. Yeah, Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, and that was another one where I said Egyptian vampire. Mm -hmm. I mean, very questionable, (laughs) Rami. Spike Lee, you've done two movies with this guy already. You're in... uh, Territory of like Samuel L. Jackson. You're, you're trying to catch up with Samuel Get L. Jackson, out of here. No. but no. So the first one, Old Boy remake, 2012. I I know there were there was some editing there, but and then 2014, Sweet Blood of Jesus. You know, gotta ask you, what's a Spike Lee joint like to be a part of? Yeah, I mean, he's obviously an icon in our business, and he's everything you expect him to be. The first time I met Spike, he just brought me in and. He was another fan of the, of the Pacific, so that shows you how one job can open yeah. so many doors for you. But I remember Spike in our meeting just kind of, he was in a good mood and he was laughing, <laughs> and I'd never seen him laugh so hard, but he was laughing at so many things I was saying, and I uh, left that meeting and my agent was like, how'd it go? And I'm like, I think he was high, man. <laughs> I think he was on something, because he was, he was... right. But I think we just had a good camaraderie, you know, and good chemistry between us. And a few days after that meeting, he was like, you know, why don't you come? You know, I got a good role for you in this movie. And again, he shot like a four-hour movie. <laughs> Didn't tell me when we watched it, sitting next to each other, how much he'd cut. I'm like, come on, Spike. Oh, man. Yeah, and another one I put my heart and soul into. So he is meticulous. He, he likes to rehearse. Beforehand, so on the day, there's not, you know, a lot of philosophical questions mm-hmm. about character. And, you know, you, it's not one of those sets where it's, my character wouldn't do this right. type of right. thing. Right. He expects you to come in with a, a clear idea and he, he'll work on that with you beforehand. Right. And then it is kind of, he has like a pace and a skill for just being very dialed in. Mm-hmm. So, 
we move you move very quickly on those films mm-hmm. because he knows exactly what he wants and he's shot listed everything and you see him with a red pen in his hand crossing off something <laughs> as soon as it's done and moving on to the next wow. he's, he's meticulous and the, and a great guy the last one pre Mr. Robot is one that I was telling you earlier I think it's top 10 of this century for me for sure and I just love it to death and I encourage people to watch it I think it's on Netflix this is a movie little indie called short term 12 which I think has the greatest assembly of young then unknown actors that that I can think of I mean Brie Larson Keith Stanfield Caitlin Deaver I'm sure I'm leaving off some aside from your and then of course yourself right John Gallagher John Jr. Gallagher yeah. Jr I mean it's it was Everybody's gone on and done great things. It's the most beautiful, powerful movie. And I just wonder any insight into what it was like doing it. And also just the, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has this kind of a really passionate response to it. No. Uh, We took that to South by Southwest where I think it it did win there. Mm -hmm. And people were very moved by this film. And as I was when I read it, I, I read it and you know, it's about about this group of, of kids that have to live in a group home and and what that life is like for those kids and the people who take care of them. And it's just a world you really don't get to see, and it, it, it's heartbreaking. You're to, kind of the surrogate for the audience because your character just shows up and joins this world at the beginning of the movie, right? Yeah, yeah and that was a great role to have because it, it did feel like I, I was that lens for the audience and how any one of us might experience being thrust into that world where you have to take care of kids who are all coming from really terrible, horrible situations with, with their home life. And when you have a group of people like that in one room, it is it can be very difficult to navigate. And so to for the audience to see that through this character's lens was, I think, had, had a deeper impact. You were saying 18 days you guys did that? We whole did movie? that, like, yeah, in three weeks. That's crazy. We all stayed. I remember staying with Keith and I. We stayed in the group home. Oh, you did? So that was like a dressing, our dressing room was one of the, you know, double bunk bedroom when I wow. was in there with Keith Stanfield. And, Obviously, you know, that's a character who we, we did not necessarily right. get along in, in <laughs> right. the uh, film. So to be changing clothes with them before we stepped in front of the camera was always an interesting experience. Yeah. But, you know, that's another Destin Cretton directed that and also wrote it. And that's something that I've just gravitated to since the, my, the early onset. Is the writer-director. The writer-director aspect is always a special experience. Why is someone, it different? They have just that unity of vision mm-hmm. where obviously I've spent so much time with the material and sometimes it's nice to get an outside perspective, mm-hmm. but it is it is good to know exactly what you want. Yeah. As an actor, I think that allows you to, to trust the filmmaker a little bit more. So I think Short Term 12 came out in 2013. I would guess that it was not long after that, based on when we first saw Mr. Robot, that you first probably heard about Mr. Robot. How did that first cross your radar? My agent sent it to me and told me that there's this special script that's out and I should have a look. Now, it's it's 
by this guy, Sam, Sam Esmail, who never done TV before. Never done television. It's called Mr. Robot. <laughs> that was a concern of mine. <laughs> the one thing I knew about it, it was, it was coming from the com- you know, Steve Golan's company, mm-hmm. uh, Anonymous mm-hmm. Content. And that was something that I knew I, I could trust in. And they were bringing it to the USA Network, which at that time had... A lot of these, what they call these blue sky shows, Mm -hmm. which was a bit of a concern, but I was, you know, told that they were trying something new here. Trying to rebrand. Rebrand, which they did in a very (laughs) emphatic way. Right. The title threw me, I have to say. uh, (laughs) What'd you think? It was, you were signing up to do like iRobot 2 or something? uh, Something. (laughs) I mean, it was, I thought we were definitely going into sci-fi territory. Right, right. But I remember, you know, turning that first page and seeing those first two words. It was, hello, friend. Hello, friend. <laughs> and whatever it is, it was, it was kept going into this great monologue. And I thought instantly, wow. And, you know, you hear that term as a page turner, but it really was by the end of it. I was on board to, like, see where this would go. And was this what you initially saw there was a full script for the pilot or was it a uh, sides essentially or like what was it no i got the full script for the pilot and it was great i mean it read like it read like a play a, a great new play yeah it hit me i was i just called my agent i was like what's the next move here right well you've said quote five or ten years ago i would have never been considered for the lead of a show even going into the audition for mr robot it was like no way. Ultimately, they're going to go with someone who looks more conventional, someone society would be more accepting of, close quote. What happened at that first audition? What did you have to do to, to actually bag this? I don't know. If you, if you know the show, there's a coffee shop scene in the first five minutes of the show where I'm trying to break out of my socially anxious shell. And by doing that, I decide that I'm going to come face to face with this guy I've been hacking and I discovered a lot about what he's actually doing by running these coffee shops called Ron's Coffee. Mm-hmm. He has very, you know, high speed internet connection and was so fast it started scratching this part of my head. <laughs> and then so I discovered he was also running this kind of underground pornography site. That was I think something ridiculous like a five page scene mm-hmm. of me just talking. You had to memorize all that for the audition? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. I went in there and did my take on it, which, like I said, casting directors or producers have usually gone, what was that? Or (laughs) or, that's interesting. And I think they found it to be interesting and maybe unlike what what they had seen the previous hundred times. Right. Now, is it true you'd also, and I don't know if this would have been at their suggestion or just you on your own, but... Was Taxi Driver something you consulted before this? Sam and I talked about Taxi Driver quite a bit afterwards. I think that was after. Sam says that the part of Elliot was actually inspired by a close friend of his who battles psychological issues that are similar to Elliot's. Do you know who that person is, and have you actually interacted with this person? I've not. I don't know that that person would want to interact with anybody. But Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, and if not that person, is there anyone else who, who is actually sort of, for you, a, a real-life inspiration for this guy? I'm thinking, like, even a Snowden or somebody. Is there, are there elements that you draw from other people? Yeah, I mean, 
You know who I wrote? I wrote an email to Laura Poitras, mm. who did Citizen yeah, Four she's great. last night. I got to work with her on this other documentary. But I would, that was just I was just thinking about Snowden the other night. Well, was, Sam is a producer on her new one about Assange, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's terrific, yeah. by the way. Really good. I just tried to do as much research as I could and and read about certain mental issues, social anxiety. I looked I looked at everything I could find and I ended up getting a haircut from my barber and we were talking about this role that I was about to prepare for. He's like, you know, you should talk to my wife. She's a psychologist. And I ended up calling her up and asking her so many questions and then calling Sam and saying, well, this, you know, is not exactly the way that it should be. <laughs> you had the part the, already, hopefully, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did have the part already. We have that type of relationship. Right, we right. Say, we can say any. I mean, we've become, I say brothers, and yeah. I think he would say the same thing. This is something that I got some flack for the other day. He was getting married, mm-hmm. and Robert Downey Jr. was at the wedding. And I came up to Robert, you know, and he's a fan of our show yes. as well. So we both got to know him from that experience. Mm-hmm. But I said, thank you for coming to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to Sam's wedding. <laughs> to Sam's wedding, yeah. And Portia Doubleday on our show and Carly Chicken were like, what? <laughs> Who do you think you are? And I think it was a cultural thing right. where it's like, it, it, I really do believe that. But we're so, Sam and I are close enough that I was like, you know, they're like, you know, his brothers wouldn't even say that. <laughs> Who do you think you are? And I started laughing at him. But I'm like, we, we've we spent so much time together yeah. that I, fe- I just feel that bond with him. That's hilarious. Well, and it's funny you bring up Downey because that was where I was going next because really? he complimented you in an interview. He said something about the fact that quote, you didn't bother to pretend that you have to have a New York accent to be a New Yorker because everything is so melting pot nowadays. Anyway, the decision that just any kind of backstory that would even lead to the decision to play the character that way, you know, how much were you able to freelance apart from what was prescribed in the script and just sort of make your own decisions about how you wanted to approach this guy? And was something like the accent even a a conscious decision? I mean... I had a very, very immediate idea of who this guy was physically, mm-hmm. what he looked like, and yeah, the type of... I think I had a similar haircut to Elliot's when I came in, and Sam and I talked about just making it more the kind of a Travis Bickle look right. from Taxi Driver, but one thing I did say is I said... He was always written with a black hoodie, and I said everything should be black. I remember seeing some ideas of having a different color backpack, like a louder kind of fun, punky, hipster thing. I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) I don't even know that Sam had seen that yet, but immediately. But the hoodie was always in there? Because I heard that you were the person that contributed the hoodie. The idea of having a hoodie was there. The finding the right hoodie was my <laughs> personal hoodie, which was an exhausting Herculean right. effort to get this thing. But I, I always said when he, if there was an aerial shot, he should look like he's disappeared into the concrete. And that's something that we've just run with. And so his wardrobe has not changed. Not changed. Much. But now in actuality, how many hoodies are there? Well, after we did the pilot and I wore the one, I mean, they had 
They had so many different, Sam's very specific and did not want it to look like anything too manicured or, at one point they had this really expensive Ralph Lauren hoodie that had been <laughs> distressed to look like right. it was something that had been around for 50 years. But even then that didn't work and I thought, I've tried on 20 <laughs> hoodies, I got to put a stop to this right. and I have a great one at home that I got for like 10 bucks at a thrift <laughs> store. So I figured if I could just walk around enough times in this hoodie, Sam would look and say, where did you get that? Or is that something that wardrobe found? And I said, no, this is, this is just <laughs> my own. I've had for years. Right. <laughs> and once he heard that, he goes, okay, that's it. That's the one. And then they, they tried to find it. They couldn't find it. So they took the, sent, found the designer and asked them to make like 20 different ones. So. But there the original hopefully is being preserved for the Smithsonian. Or somewhere. <laughs> I hope so. That would be very cool. If it was in the Smithsonian, yeah. <laughs> I would be floored. Yes. Now the haircut, though, to come back to that just for a second, because now you've started a, a bit of a, a craze. Is there a name for the type of haircut that I don't Elliot know. has? I don't know that there is. It's like a fade or something. I don't know what you would call it. I don't know what you call it either, but I did go to here in Manhattan, I've you know, one day I decided to go to a different shop and the woman was cutting my hair and she started laughing and I was like, what's so funny? <laughs> She's like, you don't know how many times I've had people come in here and ask for this hair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're changing the culture there with that. But a guy that's in Elliot's predicament, psychological issues, things that you've explored, I know even talked to professionals about to, to try to understand what he's going through. Why does a guy, and he's clearly, you know, so it seems like if we were to medically break it down, correct me if this is wrong, but depression, social anxiety, addiction to morphine, not happy with his work life, not happy with his home life. Would this guy ever actually contemplate just checking out? Just why, why is he sticking around? He's an angry guy. He's an angry <laughs> <laughs> You know, from the second I read this the first episode, I, I brought that to Sam's attention quite a bit. I go, what keeps Elliot <laughs> on this planet? And, you know, he is on the cusp of breaking, I think. I think deep down inside what makes this character so special is that despite all that inner trauma, turmoil, how he copes with it is this, there is this steel inside of him that has a little bit of hope not only for himself, but for the world around him that, that keeps him pushing on and persevering. And it's those people that I think you look at and say, man, how, how did they get through that and become, you know, this, this person that we see now that is, has this profound outlook on life and is able to affect some, you know, the change that, that, certain people do after mm -hmm. after they have experienced that and those are people we often look at as heroes and so i think there is not only this i think there's you know there is this cognizant aware part of him that sees himself as some type of superhero deep down inside well, i was gonna say like so superman goes and puts on a, a cape he goes and puts on his hoodie and he feels like he what is it protects him from the rest of the world, he can. He, that's the only way he can survive in this world is to kind of basically go undercover in a sense. Yes, yeah. And a lot of people are saying, like, that you get these debates, is he a hero, is he an anti-hero? I mean, he does pretty objectively bad things, you know, in some cases with looking at people's personal information. 
But it seems like in his mind, at least, he always feels that it's serving a noble purpose, right? Is that fair it, to say? It is fair to say. I mean, I think there is, of course, and it, it, there are questions that I, I toil with in working on portraying him is, is what he's doing. I mean, if you look at it, if there wasn't music behind the show and it wasn't, you know, as elegantly put, put together, right. would you even like this guy? Right. And that's kind of a new, newish thing because for most TV history, pre last decade or so, maybe a little more than that, you're supposed to unequivocally be in the corner of the protagonist and feel that they are somebody that you can sort of stand behind. Yeah. But it's, this is the whole anti-hero thing. But do you see him as a hero or an anti-hero, or is that just too simplistic? I see him as both because. I do have to grapple with certain decisions he makes and question, you know, how self-serving they are. And, I mean, someone that you want to root for in, in that way can only be, there's only a level of selfishness that I think people can deal with. And for me, I look at his moral center, I look at his where his ethics lie and how much remorse he has for what he does. Mm-hmm. And it can't be remorse, you know, pre any event. It ha- because then he has to, he's too aware of, of what he's about to do. But in these moments, he makes kind of fight or flight decisions. And that's when I look at it from an objective way and say, he's just not acknowledging what might happen in that moment that makes him kind of heroic because he is just trying to do what his instincts tell him to do. And then when there's, you know, downtime, he looks at the kind of the consequences and repercussions and just how how bad his decision-making might have been. Well, I wonder if one of the things that tips it in favor of the audience staying in his corner is perhaps the voiceovers, where we go inside his mind a little more than we otherwise would be able to. And even if it's not always reliable, you know, based on how things play out, you kind of inherently empathize with the person who you're seeing the story through their prism. Everybody is more relatable if you're seeing it through their through their eyes. So, you know, just voiceovers generally, their, their function in this. And specifically, because I was reading stuff that I don't even know what, I don't know, I'm not sure if I followed how it worked, but earwigs and girls talking in your ear and stuff while you're doing this. How does this even work with the with the voiceovers when you're having to act these scenes out where we subsequently hear you doing the voiceover? What are you hearing when you're doing it? Well, one, to talk about, the, you know, that it does aid me quite a bit to have that voiceover, you know, depicting this character, because you're right, without that voiceover, you might question all of that subtext. And it would be an entirely different show. I think the relationship the audience gets to have that is very unique and, and tethered to this this you know young man's story is because of that voiceover. You're you're let into his inner world and his reality. Even though we might think of him as as an unreliable narrator, it is his reality mm-hmm. that you're seeing, what reliable or, or unreliable. Reed in, in 1984 has this line where he says, reality is inside the skull. <laughs> I thought yeah. that related so well Absolutely. to Elliot. 
in the pilot, we had there was so much voiceover. I, I memorized it all because I didn't know how it was. I was new to that concept. And then Sam said, well, we're going to have to get the timing exactly right. So they put basically an earpiece in my ear, and I would hear the, the voiceover. This is you having pre-recorded the voiceover? No, I asked to pre-record it, and somehow we didn't have enough time. Ah. So on the day, the first time, it was actually Sam, Esmail, talking in my wow. ear during the scene. And at that point, Sam and I had gone through the scripts at nauseum. So hearing him kind of talk as he's watching me in his pilot was just, it was too much. Jarring, huh? It was jarring. I look, I've looked into, right down the <laughs> barrel of, of, of the, the camera, and I go, this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so I started my own audition process, and one of the PAs on the show, she was lovely, Sarah Block, and she's been, she had such a personable quality about her she was just lovely to be with on the day and I always envisioned that inner voice being a kind of nurturing female That's voice so yeah. yeah like the person maybe I felt I could talk to the most was a woman even your own internal monologue though would be from you envisioned before even her that it would be a woman female voice yeah just having being being comforted by that in some way that's and, amazing uh, yeah wow. and now sam has stole her from me and made her his personal assistant and she brought her still, into the writer's uh, room moonlight as your voice person oh yes she does <laughs> that, that was a, a big question of whether that was going to happen or not but i had to put my foot yeah down. right <laughs> throw some weight around it seems like from having seen a bunch of your stuff you've always had in the best sense sort of like a minimalist approach. You don't go over the top. And I think actually one of the things that I, I remember thinking when I first saw Mr. Robot is that you can do so much with your eyes. This guy doesn't often say that much and whatever. It's like you would have been you would have been great in the silent era as well because you could just emote so much with that. And what I'm wondering is was Elliot always intended to be as nonverbal in a lot of ways as he is, or was that tailored for you, and B, part B of this is the scene where this is the most interesting, I think, is when, and I'm not even going to bother with the spoiler. If you haven't seen the show, you shouldn't be this far into the conversation. But so Agreed. you go and free this jail so that you can hopefully recover your girlfriend and then find out that she's already been killed. And the way that you react to this, not only non-verbally, but almost non emotionally in the way that people have come to expect. I just, from the early onset of, of this character, I knew that subtlety was going to be very, very important because there was, you already have the voiceover, right? And I know that my eyes can be very expressive, sometimes too expressive. <laughs> but I saw, and this is a discussion I had with Sam, I said, these it's going to be very reined in. That's how I see him, and Sam agreed with me. And and that's just how I, I've thought about even his movements in the pilot when we were shooting. I remember I never wanted him to feel like an overly paranoid person to the point, you know, there are sometimes now in this third season where I'm not quite able to do everything as subdued as I would like <laughs> just because there's no way you can get right. away with that right. in some of these situations. 
But yeah, that moment with Shayla and I think it was the sixth episode was a moment that I had known about since the beginning. And so I had in the back of my head, I was always wondering every night almost how I was going to play that. And there was just something I, I always thought how I would do it as as Rami, how that would feel. And I, I, I could never wrap my head around that moment. And so I thought, you know, that's not a bad way to play is rein it in. And, and you don't have to force that because the moment is the moment. Mm-hmm. And you re- really don't have to get aggressive with I mean, there, there are times when it does require expression when something tragic happens like that and it is as expressive as i think it needed to be and maybe as he can be as he can be in that moment and those things really take time to hit so there's a there's actually the loss of of that woman in my life now plays or in elliot's life yes the actor talking (laughs) plays in every scene now i mean you deal with with those things become part of your DNA later on. So there could be a very emotional scene after in the most mundane conversation where you would know exactly what he was crying about. Mm -hmm. That's the way I I kind of look at all of these moments is don't do the unexpected for the sake of being unexpected, but, you know, find a way to make the unexpected true to, to the what's happening in the moment. But your point about how it can just manifest itself the, the emotions in something later. What blows my mind is that is reading that season one, you know, like most shows, you, I guess you go sort of bit by bit, you move along. Season two, I guess because Sam wanted to personally direct every episode, was done in a block style, meaning, and stop me if any of this is incorrect, you get the whole script for the whole season at the beginning, but then you're going to do it like a movie where, all right, we need to be at Elliot's apartment. We're going to do all the scenes at Elliot's apartment there, even if it means that we're, we're going to have to be jumping all over chronologically. So does that screw you up as an actor who has to build on major moments like that when you have to then, well, actually, this we haven't gotten to that yet, but we've got to play how he's responding to that. And all that, that's got to be the hardest thing there is. I'm not going to lie, and I, <laughs> I, I, I do not enjoy that part of it. But in order to get Sam to do it, that's, that is the way that our production schedule has to work. And I will, of course, take Sam directing them over the how taxing it is to shoot that way. Because season one, how are you doing it? Season one, we had some great directors come in and out, but it is such a complicated story, and Sam was there every day. So you, we did have that aspect where he could oversee everything, but, you know, it's a difficult story to follow for, you know, a guest director to come in and know these characters as intricately as, of course, Sam does, and know the actual through line of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Do you have a secret for how to handle that? Do you have to sort of map it out somehow? What's good about it, you have to have uh, map it out, and it's literally you know, having a, a board and following your character throughout. Mm-hmm. And what is good about it is it makes you have to be responsible for knowing all of those scripts as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, on day one of this third season, I believe I was shooting from the seventh episode. 
And there have been moments where I'm like, Sam, you got to help me out here mm-hmm. because as much as the work I've done this moment, I, I want to play this way and correct me if I'm wrong. And we'll have, it's, we, we just have discussions. But what we've done, Sam and I, is, I said this third season, I was in London prepping for another job and I said, we're going to have conversations about each script mm-hmm. before we even start. So... I mean, every other night we would talk for about three hours wow. about all these scripts and these, you know, the characters, all of them, but especially Elliot, that journey so that there would be, like I said with Spike, that, that removing the philosophy from on the day, yeah. from the discussion where we could just look at each other and know exactly because we had talked about it. And the greatest thing that happened from that is there was always someone on the other line taking notes. So... I said, are these all being dictated, you know, typed out? And and now I have asked for all of those. That's great. Yeah, so I have all of our correspondence on paper. But yes, it is, you can ask any actor, (laughs) we don't enjoy it, but we will take Sam steering the ship over the uh, hardships of that any day of the week. And, you know, ultimately, it's not one of those shows where we're going to, like, bleed this thing dry there's an a, you know a very finite ending to this and well i heard once or one of the things i read was that you said sam quote told me everything that happens over the course of five seasons close quotes does that mean there are only intended to be five seasons man i'm i've been told not to talk about only doing five seasons <laughs> i think they always want to leave this window open but I would be very surprised if it goes beyond that. And okay. that's what's special about it. Yeah. I mean, you can talk about how methodical season two was and, you know, as opposed to the pace of the first season, you know, but we're treating this as a movie and that's kind of, that. that's the act we were in. And now this third season, which we've shot half, is, you know, I, I keep using this word electric because that's how it feels. It's because of, you know, this kind of intricate story that we've laid out in the second season and and getting to know, you know, our protagonist a little bit better and, and his mental state, going into season three, having all of that information sets that goes back to such a fast pace and having all of that detail underneath it all, it, it really is exciting because of we're further along in the story and... And our episodes are a little bit shorter, so it's it's pretty riveting oh, so great. far. Wrapping it up, what I want to just talk about is the response that you've got into this show. I think season two was ordered before the pilot even aired, which is a pretty big vote of confidence from the network. You And in return, you guys have made USA cooler than they've ever been, so it's been reciprocal. But all humility aside, did you suspect that the first season would go over to the extent that it did, where you're winning Critics' Choice and Emmys, the show's nominated for all these things, wins, you know, Christian wins the Golden Globe. First-year shows rarely get that type of a response on top of audiences loving it, critics loving it, blah, blah, blah. So when that happened, what did what did you make of it? I remember being up in our childhood home on the show where doing a scene with preparing to do a that scene with Christian holding him out the window. <laughs> and he's just sitting there with me and kind of smiling. And I said, what are you laughing at? He goes, man, I haven't slept this well in like 20 years. <laughs> and we had just got that information that we were getting to picked up. And uh, it was just nice to see that, the humanity of that experience from 
him, you know, a guy who's who's been working in this business since he was, you know, four or mm-hmm. five. So uh, that was a pretty profound moment just for me to to really take it all in. And he's like, take this in, Rami. Really try to be present for all of it because this does not happen. And that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning. I mean, that was even before awards or anything. Right. And he's constantly been there grounding me through the entire thing. Just, you know, the way he carries himself is incredibly mature and dignified and classy. And he's just very present. I don't know. I mean, he's obviously lived through a lot of shit. So to get to, <laughs> to, get to this place, right. I understand. But I remember shooting the pilot and feeling like we had something very... I mean, the script was great, but then the execution of it shooting in New York, having these kind of very austere shots that we were putting together, the cinematic quality of all of it, I said to myself, this could be really great. Or it could just be some super culty thing that, <laughs> uh, you know, people take to on and binge watch. But and then I got in the editing room for one day by accident and I saw what was happening and had a minor meltdown. <laughs> but no, you can't expect these things. And when they happen, I remember meeting the, the journalist for the Golden Globes and thinking, it just was like, what? Our show? And I mean, as much, you've talked about the, the work I've done, but I was like, still, you never think those things are coming. You just don't. And then, you know, being up on the stage for the Emmys is people keep asking, I'm like, well, you looked so shocked. Were, were you acting? I'm like, no. I mean, I'm, I'm there with, you know. One of the youngest people ever to win that. First non-white person to win that in 18 years. And, you know, again, for a first year show, that doesn't, that just doesn't happen. So I guess that was a, and then when, you know, the thing that I get a kick out of is now you're, you guys couldn't have timed this better, unfortunately, because now hacking is something everybody's thinking about and every time they mention Russian hacking or anything that's going on for a lot of people their only point of reference of how to understand this certainly for a generation that didn't grow up with this kind of technology is you guys yeah credit to Sam he is so ahead of the game and I mean it's almost as if the guy's got a crystal ball into the future because during the first season, he was writing things, and I go, that can't happen. And then sure enough, it was showing up. And, Ashley Madison yeah, and Ashley, all, the, all that. The guy killing himself on the air. I mean, my God. For a certain moment, I was starting to think that, <laughs> that he had some portal into no, the future. Amazing. And this third season, as he's writing, and I'm like, this can't happen. <laughs> so Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> well, I, I love it. I thank you so much for doing this. And, I mean... I, I can't wait to see. I hear about Freddie Mercury and all kinds of other stuff. But let's we'll, we'll leave it for there. But yeah. I really appreciate it so I'll much. I'll tell you what. I'm just I'm getting my ass kicked, but it is worth it. I mean, I never thought that I would ever be in this position, and I can't. I, I will say this. I was just. It is a profoundly humbling place to be, where this is all happening and and so unexpected. But it's something you you, you really only dream about, and and. The fact that I'm getting to live that out, it makes the most difficult days so 
easy to get through because of, of this. And I have to say, like, I talked about so many agents and, and the, all those people, casting directors. You know, I have a, a great guy at WME, Doug Luchterhand, and I know a lot of people in the industry hear this. And I got to say, I would not be here without so many, but mm-hmm. it's especially, you know, a great person on my team. That's great. Hey, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you, my it. man. 